the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Today on Church of the Week, a conversation with the lead pastor of Hillside Church of San Jose, Dr. Keith Crosby. Dr. Crosby holds a B.A. in political science and earned his MDiv and doctorate in ministry degrees from the master... Pardon me, that little frog there. We'll do that again. Okay. Dr. Crosby holds his B.A. in political science and earned his MDiv and doctorate in ministry degrees from the Master's Seminary. He served as outreach depart- he served in the outreach department at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, also as an English pastor at a Mandarin Baptist Church of San Fernando Valley, and as senior pastor at Bethel Baptist Church before coming to Hillside in 2016. Dr. Crosby and his wife, Terry, have two daughters, Grace and Anna. And we understand there are no ties to the famous crooner, but it's rumored that he does occasionally sing in the shower. And Pastor Crosby, a delight to have you join us. It's great to be here, and the rumors are true, but I don't know that I want to go beyond that. Thanks. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, if if you come out with your first album, you sure be sure to let us know, and we'll we'll give it some airplay here. <laughs> Will do. Well, a delight to get a chance to spend some time with you, and um, and get an opportunity to talk not only, not only about what God is doing at Hillside Church of San Jose, but also your heartbeat for the church here in the Bay Area, and of course we we come at this. A very interesting juncture in history. In fact, your tenure at Hillside Church is an interesting time in in history. You're right there in the very heart of the Silicon Valley. I know that you've shared with me privately in the past your burden for reaching people that are deep into technology and see that as the future, to also talk to them about this timeless God of the ages. And with that in mind, give, give me your sense as you kind of look back on your, your five years now in San Jose. What is God doing? You know, God is doing what he's always done. He's calling sinners to repentance, to forgiveness. He, you know, he stands ready, willing, and able to forgive anybody for anything if they'll accept his free gift of grace and salvation. And what we're trying to do here is to introduce people to that message. Our, our goal for the last five years is to change this community and this world one soul at a time with the message of Jesus Christ. And we do that by being an authentic Christian and in our authenticity and humility, trying to bring people to Christ and then build them up in the faith as they embrace Christ. We were sharing a bit before we came on the air today about the notion that the current state of what's going on in the country, in the world, really, in relationship to the impact of COVID, the tragic loss of life, the number of people that have suffered at so many levels because of this terrible pandemic, and how that in many respects it tends to bring out both the best and the worst in people. Do you think that's also true in terms of the church, that sometimes there are periods of trial or great persecution that will either bring out the best in the church, meaning boldly moving forward and continuing without fear to preach the gospel, versus the the worst of the church, meaning kind of running for cover, hiding out in the catacombs and hoping nobody sees you? I think that's true, Craig. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Charles Dickens in uh, Tale of Two Cities who said it's the best of times and the worst of times. And I think that's what we're living in right now. I think we're living in an era, particularly in this country, where uh, this is the most probably the most difficult times for the church in America. Uh, from the governor's mansion here in California to the White House, we have uh, administrations who, shall we say, are not Christian or church friendly necessarily. And I think we have a culture that is post-Christian. They tend to label us as intolerant or bigots or things like that. And sometimes Christian people play into that stereotype. And I think pastors and churches and congregations do face 
a fork in the road. They can try to cut a deal with the culture. They can compromise their message. Uh, they can bury their head in the sand and hope their problems go away. Or, as I said earlier, we can play offense for the kingdom of God. And I think that God always calls his people to be faithful. And the Christian faith is a faith where we put our trust in a suffering Savior who also causes us to suffer. And so I think for a church to thrive and survive, as many churches are doing in this area, you cannot compromise with the culture. You just have to you know, sort of uh, take your licks, as it were, in the community and just try to present Christ as faithfully and with as much conviction and, and compassion as you can. But there is no room for compromise. And perhaps moments of, of stress and challenge, it might be easier for somebody to say, well, look, that road ahead, that's wide. We can kind of get a sense of where that's headed. Let's take that nice wide path, not recognizing that without failure, it inevitably leads right off the cliff. Taking that narrow road, that narrow path, not as fun, lots of twists and turns, very challenging at times, but in the end, the most productive, both in terms of the quality of the kind of Christian life that we live out, the sort of impact that we have in the lives around us, and the nature and totality of our relationship with Christ himself. And I, and I, and I suppose the big, the big dividing line between the two, kind of that ses- sense of separation of che- the wheat from the chaff, yeah. must largely be those who have, are learned, who have studied to show themselves approved, who who've drove into the Word of God, learned it and applied it, versus those that kind of look at the Bible maybe as either a suggestion book or something at least nice to press flowers in on the coffee table. Well, that's it. You know, it, and it really does come down to uh, how you look at the Bible is how you look at God. If the Bible is just another book of wisdom, then this God that we serve is just one God and a pantheon of gods. And that's why one of the things we try to emphasize here at Hillside is we can either blend in with the culture, which makes us entirely irrelevant, just another social club, or we can stand out for Christ. And we can stand out in ways that are positive, where people look at us, our willingness to suffer for what we believe, our willingness to love the unlovable, and our willingness to share the gospel, whatever the cost, personally, professionally, or otherwise, and by God's grace— uh, they see something different in us, and we may, in some cases, get a fair hearing from someone. Uh, we know that many are called and few are chosen, as Jesus talks about, and we know that, as he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and you just referred to it, that wide is the way that leads to destruction, and that's a well-populated and well-traveled road, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and we want to take the narrow road. Uh, that might be the road le- less traveled, but it's the road that God has called us to tread upon, and to try to take as many people with us, humanly speaking. In that process, oftentimes the church will get accused of uh, of being kind of a downer. We're, <laughs> we're the party pooper crowd, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that we have a longer list of don'ts than we do a list of do's. I've even heard it articulated that people get a very clear understanding of what it is the church is against, but are really not clear on what the church stands for. And I would wonder in the process of being about the master's business in that that salt and light that is so desperately needed in this world today, if there are things that the church can and should be doing to do a better job at proclaiming truth, at, at turning on that light to dispel the darkness. You know, you make a very good point, Craig. I think what's happened in many cases, many of the churches, uh, many of the uh, accusations against the church ring true, because in some sense, uh, many times Christians lose perspective and they look for worldly solutions to spiritual problems. I'm, I'm just struck today that so many people have turned to politics for, and they're looking for a political savior. They're looking for someone to come in and fix everything that's broken. And in reality, uh, we're falling into, in many cases, not always, but many churches fall into the same trap, and many Christians who make up these churches fall into the same trap that the Jewish people fell into when Jesus came. They were looking for a political Messiah, a military leader, uh, and they missed the true Messiah. And sometimes 
Sometimes Christians are seeking political and social solutions to theological, spiritual, and moral problems. And when we do that, we do look like a bunch of legalists. What can and should we be doing right now to strengthen the stakes of our tents and to be prepared to reach more for Christ? Because Scripture does also tell us, yes, in the end times there'll be a great falling away, but also there will be a tremendous harvest. And I think God is queuing us up here for something. Again, I don't want to go as far as to say I've got the inside track and I know the date and the hour, but I think that sense of urgency and the tremendous opportunity that God has given us is one that we do not want to miss. I think you're 100% right, and we're just excited to be part of his redemptive plan. God has given every Christian a little piece of redemptive real estate, and that's what we want to do is to expand his kingdom. You know, and so we're we're excited. We really are. God's doing a lot down there at Hillside Church of San Jose. Again, they meet Sunday mornings in person at eight, nine thirty, and eleven, with online services available at nine thirty and eleven a.m. as well. Located at five forty-five Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. Information available on the web at hillside.org. That's hillside.org. I am struck too, based. Pastor Crosby, on your your geographic location, that as much as you're right in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you're really in the heart of a tremendously diverse place, and the church very much reflects that. It does. It does. You know, we have people. You know, it's, it's you know, our community is about uh, a third uh, Hispanic, about a third Asian, Indo Asian. Uh, and uh, uh, Sino-Asian, and then, you know, you, you, a third uh, Caucasian and other, uh, and other uh, ethnicities, and our church is beginning to reflect that. Uh, we're thrilled. We have people from all, from countries that, you know, from Botswana and Nigeria, we have people from India, we have people from Korea, we have people from all over the place, and we have people from San Jose. But this is a picture of the kingdom of God, you know, it's a, it's it's kind of a sad story, but historically, the the, the eleven o'clock hour, let's call it the hour everybody goes to church, is one of the most segregated uh, hours in America. And yet, when people go to work, they have people of all kinds of nationalities and all colors. And that's the way the church should be, and that's what we're striving to become. And we, I think, we've made progress by God's grace and providence in that. And, uh, and that's what that's continues to be our mission as well to reach all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Well, and I think that not only is, um, something that thrills the heart of God, it, it, it is representative of a church that represents what the Bay area diversity looks like, but most importantly, you alluded to this a moment ago, it also represents the diversity of heaven because I'm a firm believer when we get to the pearly gates, uh, Peter is not going to say, okay, the, the Baptist section <laughs> is yeah. over here. Presbyterians, you hang out over there. Uh, no, it, it's going to be come one, come all, and and our identity, and this is as it should be, our identity should not be wrapped up in the language we speak, in the color of our skin, in the kind of food that we eat, though those are all wonderful things, but ultimately our identity should be in Christ because we are made not in the image of our, like in my case, my relatives in Italy. No, we are made in the image of very God himself. And those are at the core, our roots, and they are to be celebrated. And I think it's it's encouraging and delightful to hear that God is doing that today at Hillside Church. Well, thank you. We're thrilled. We're humbled and we're honored. God is just so good to us. You know, we are an intergenerational church we have, it's just been a pleasure to serve the people of Hillside. They are just a loving, welcoming people, and they have supported uh, the changes in direction and ministry, and they have really just put themselves out there. I love them, and they have loved me and my family through thick and thin. Well, we appreciate the time today, Pastor, and again, I want to invite folks, maybe you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area in search of a church home, we invite you to check out Hillside Church of San Jose. They meet at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. Information available on the web at hillside.org. That's hillside.org. We're always delighted to spend some time with Dr. Keith Crosby. A tremendous blessing not only to Hillside, but a blessing to all of us here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Pastor, we appreciate your heartbeat for ministry, your passion for the gospel, your dedication to 
proclaiming God's word, unabashed and and unedited, as they say. (laughs) And uh, we thank you so much for spending a couple of moments with us here today to get a chance to know a bit about you, your ministry, and uh, what God is doing today at Hillside Church. Well, thank you for having me, Craig. The pleasure was all mine. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much. Father, we thank you. We thank you that each and every one of us, Lord, gets to write our own epitaph at the end of when our life is over people will look at us and look at our legacy and remember us in some way father and we see that with Paul we see that with others we see that with people like Marvin Francine Lord uh, we see that with those who've gone before us and so Lord help us when you call us home or when you return to be found faithful to leave a legacy Lord that is eternal to write an epitaph Lord that uh encourages and exhorts others to excel still more. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the conclusion of our series on uh, church matters and our sub-series on hanging in and hanging on when times are tough. How do you wrap up 2 Timothy? This is Paul's swan song, and it is a glorious, glorious, glorious piece of Scripture It's also, in its own way, sad because of his circumstances and situation in that moment. It's glorious because of the reward that awaits him. We know that his life was just beginning because this life here is just a small little piece. And what comes after this is eternal. And so as we get into this, it's a kind of a weighty passage. And sometimes it's good to start weighty things with a little bit of judicious humor. And so that's what I will attempt today. Uh, Often my attempts in that arena fail, but sometimes it's good to tackle a serious subject with a humorous start. So I want to look at some epitaphs of other people as we think about our own epitaph in the faith. And the first one is kind of on the back of a tombstone, uh, and it is of a father. I can identify with this as a father of daughters who raised four daughters, and let me read it to you. It says, uh, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and still there was love. I can say amen to that. I remember in my seminary days, and, he, and we lived in a home with one restroom, and as the, the girls grew, and me being the only dude in the house, you know, those, that bathroom, you know, getting bathrooms, it was like, it was like timeshare, man. You had to get in there, and uh, And it was an opportunity for sanctification and for love, and uh, so I identify with this. But on to a more serious uh, epitaph, and that is uh, that of Samuel Wetmore. A lot of times when we think about our walk with God, our service of Christ, we focus on the fact that we're coming late to the game, or that we have squandered so many opportunities, and we we just feel discouraged. And uh, this is a marker to this man. And it reads, and it reads, uh, Samuel Whitmore, then 80 years old, on, near this spot, killed three British soldiers, April 19, 1776. He was shot, bayoneted, beaten, and left for dead, but recovered and lived to be 98 years old. Now you think about that, he became notable at 80. And lived another 19 years. You might say he was a late bloomer. I suspect he wasn't. I suspect what enabled him to do what he did and to hang in and hang on had probably defined him much before that. But this is how he's remembered. Starting late in the game. Maybe like, like Abraham who started at 75. The fact is, is uh, epitaphs, we all have one. We're all writing one. We are all... Uh, leaving a legacy behind, the question is, what will it be? And the ones we just had maybe illustrate our dilemma in this difficult age in which we live with some humor. But there are uh, other epitaphs I'd like to share with you. One of my favorite ones, I originally had two here, but uh, this is Blaise Pascal's epitaph. I know some people are going, Blaise Pascal? Blaise who? Well, Blaise Pascal was a... Uh, child genius and he was an inventor and he has touched every life here in this room 
Every single person in this room has been touched by Blaise Pascal. What are the things that he invented? He invented the city bus. They call it the omnibus in those days. And it wasn't diesel powered, it was horse drawn. He invented the concept that we call the wristwatch. In his era, most people wore pocket watches. And he got the idea about, hey, what about I slap this thing on my wrist and I can see it more easily. We don't think of him in terms of that. Another uh, thing that he invented that was one of my trials at university was probability theory and statistics. He's credited with formulating that himself. He invented the syringe. He invented the early barometer. Like I said, he was kind of a child genius because he did all of this before the age of 39, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. He came up with, he pioneered something called hydraulics. Pascal's principle in physics, pressure applied to a confined liquid is transmitted undiminished through liquid in all directions, regardless of the area to which the pressure is applied. That's the basis for hydraulics. And if you've got brakes on your car, you can thank uh, Blaise Pascal. And if you don't, you need to go to the shop and get that taken care of, right? But all this is amazing when you consider that he died at, he died at 39 years old in the year 1662. Now think about that. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica describes him as a French mathematician, a physicist, a religious philosopher, and a master of prose. In his era, he wrote a number of theological letters that challenged the, the understanding of Christianity at the time. He was, uh, you might call, a proto-Protestant theologian. He was born again in 1654, eight years before he died. Uh, and the legacy that he wanted to be known by, he had sewn into his jacket pockets. He had this device, obviously inventor. He could move that epitaph and that, that statement to any jacket that he wore at any time. And he did so faithfully until the day of his death. And at his death, a servant dis- dis- discovered it. And it, it, this was the epitaph that he wrote for himself. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scholars. And then he had inscribed Psalm 119.16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Saved at 31, died at 39. All the, and, and, this, and this man wanted to be known for the last eight years of his life and his relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we look at people like this today, we ask ourselves, maybe, what will my legacy and epitaph be like? Like I said, everybody leaves one. And the question is, what will ours be like? And I think as we consider leaving our own legacy, no matter how late we got started, even if you get started today, writing your epitaph with deliberation and and intentionality, the Apostle Paul leaves an epitaph that can serve as an outline for yours. And in his epitaph, there are three keys to writing an epitaph that we need to uh, appropriate for ourselves. Now, where is Paul's epitaph found? Some people say it's found in the entire epistle of 2 Timothy, that he's writing as he knows that he's about to die. And some say it's really contained and encapsulated in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22, which we're going to read. And others say, and I agree with them, that it's just a very small portion of that passage. But I want to read the whole passage for you now as we wrap up this series on 2 Timothy. And I want you to see if you can find it in there. Because what we see here as we begin to read this passage is that Paul is going to, is seeking to finish strong. He is sprinting not to the tape, But as Pastor Chris said last week, through the tape. He's not going to slow down and then break the tape. He's going to just lunge through it. He's not going to let up until he is gone. And you see this in this passage here. And he's writing to encourage Timothy and also believe to kind of suck Timothy along in his wake or his jet stream. 
So let's read 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. And I believe the passage begins with his epitaph. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. For I am being, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He clearly knows he's about to die. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, and here's the hope for us, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. He's talking about the final, the Bema judgment for believers, uh, which is a good day. And then watch what happens here. From here, Paul goes to tie up loose ends in his ministry, never leaving anything undone to the best of his ability. This is sprinting through the tape. Do your best to come to me soon, because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. He's still, he's still working right here, right? When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Some translations say the scrolls that speaks to the Old Testament. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all of the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul remembers his friends. Greet Prisca and Achilla and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia, and all the brothers. And then Paul ends this note with a word of grace here. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You might say in here there's a boatload of epitaphs, really. Because you're just seeing someone sprinting toward the finish line who has lived a life, at least the last half of it, for Christ. And what you see here is him persevering in the tough times, hanging in and hanging on. And he's being defined not by his sin, not by the fact that he persecuted the church the first half of his life, but by how he finished his life. You know, believers are not evaluated. They're not judged by their sin. They're judged by their service. That's the Bema judgment. We'll get into that when we study the book of Revelation. Stay tuned because it's coming quickly. And so, what we see here are words of encouragement, words of hope, words of conviction, words of a certainty in the Savior's provision. All of this helps us to hang in and hang on. Even though he's been abandoned, he's hanging on to Jesus, and Jesus is sustaining him. And we all see also his epitaph. And again, some of us may be saying, look, I've made so many mistakes, I've I've messed up. But again, it's not how you begin the race. It's how you finish the race. I mean, Peter denied Christ three times. And then there was that mess at Galatia where Paul confronted him to his face. But Peter wrote 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Peter was faithful at the end and died in the service of his Savior. Abraham called a ministry at 75. The first 75 years of his life, we don't know anything about Sam Whitmore, Samuel Whitmore, right? We don't, we don't hear about him till he's 80. He's not even in the Bible, but we looked at his epitaph. And so I, I want us to have hope here. 
particularly in the difficult times in which we live. I want you to have hope in the here and now and hope in the hereafter. And what I want to do today is to, is to give you three keys to leaving a legacy, to writing an epitaph modeled after the Apostle Paul. Because in a few short sentences, he gives us a blueprint for mindfully, for attentively and intentionally writing our own epitaph as our lives draw to a close, no matter how old we are, no matter what trials we face. And these are also three keys to keep you and me, all of us, on track in these tough times in which we live. That epitaph is found in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, and I want to read it for you again. And then we'll distill these keys here. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's very, very aware of his present, of his circumstance. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He's living in the here and now, he's mindful of his past. And then in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And he is looking to the future. That's what kept Paul going, you know, that upward call toward Christ, forgetting what lies behind, making the most of the here and now with an eye toward eternity. Each of these is intertwined together like strands in a cord, and these are three keys that you and I can lay hold of and apply to our lives, our legacies, as we write our epitaph. So let's consider the first key. Because there's great encouragement here. No matter where you are right now spiritually, what matters is where and how you finish. So key number one, the first key is consider the present. Be mindful of the present. Live consciously, live self-consciously of the times that you are in, in the here and now, and the example that you are setting And so you see his mindfulness here, his awareness of his present situation. And that creates in him an urgency that you're going to see through the rest of the passage. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice. I am already being sacrificed. And the time of my departure, the time of my death has come. He has gotten wind of the fact that he's about to die. This is his second time before the emperor. The first time he was released, this time not so much. This is on the eve or at the beginning of the Neronian persecution. Paul is about to die. He knows this. He knows others like Timothy are going to have to follow in his footsteps. They're going to face and suffer in hard times. They're going to take up their cross and follow after Christ as Paul did. And he knows that others will know of him through his legacy that he leaves behind, like these epistles, for example. And so apparently he's prepared to die and leave this life with a clear conscience. And why is that? Because Paul was always mindful of his mission, of his calling. He didn't live in the past. He lived in the present and he made most, the most of the opportunity. He was always, if you want to put it this way, present in the present ready to live and ready to die, always willing to die to himself for the sake of others. You read about that in Philippians, right? I don't know. I'm torn between two directions, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I have more work to do for you, but I'm ready to go home. Paul lived his entire life this way, always aware that each day could be his last. We read in Philippians 2.17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Philippians was a prison epistle written during his first imprisonment. He was ready to die then, but he was also ready to stay behind and serve others. It's fair to say that Paul lived his life with an awareness that this life is short 
and eternity is long. And that kept him focused. That kept the main thing the main thing. He lived for his God and he lived for others. That's the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he was able to minister pouring it on and pouring it out right up into the closing moments of his life. We should be living the same way, aware of our own mortality, aware that no one has promised us tomorrow, and make the most of the day in which we are living here and now, as he did then and there in that dirty, stinking Mamertine prison. Paul writes even then in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 12, you see that he's, he, he, he knows his situation. He is... Uh, about to die, and yet he's continuing to live for Christ. Verse 9 through 12. Do your best to come to me soon. Time is short. Because Demas, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Now look what he says. Get Mark. Get John Mark. And bring him with you. Because four, he is very useful to me for ministry. He's, he's going to minister until he's dead. Now you know about John Mark and Paul and, you know, they had their parting of the way and John Mark was the cause of it. And then he says, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Why? Ministry. Ministry. This man isn't stumbling toward the finish line. He's not sprinting to the tape. He is sprinting through the tape. Because for Paul, there was never retirement in ministry in this life. He wanted to make every second count. That's part of his legacy. It needs to be part of ours. It needs to be part of hillside churches. He was deserted by those closest to him, betrayed. I'm sure he was surprised, caught off guard, and yet he remained determined because his joy was his savior. And so he says, bring Mark, because he's useful for me in ministry. And until I die, I have ministry to do. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Why? To take care of the church there. He's thinking. He's not saying, woe is me. He's not saying, well, this is it. I'm going to catch my breath and rest now. And he says, so do your best to come to me soon, because it's not over until it's over. And he wants his Bible. He wants the scrolls. He wants the parchments. He wants his books. He's living with a consciousness, a self-consciousness of the time. His time. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But, in invisible ink you might say, I still have work to do, and I'm not dead yet. And this enables him to focus. I'm still here. I'm aware I know what I'm up against, but I have a purpose to fulfill, a calling, a mission. And this mindfulness of the urgency, of the shortness of the time, made him effective to the very end. And it should have the same effect on us, given the times in which we are living now. It enables us, mindful of our present situation, Mindful of the fact that we live in the here and now and no one has promised us tomorrow that we have a legacy to leave and we can leave such a legacy. We can write such an epitaph with no regrets like Paul. And again, Paul wasn't perfect, right? He wasn't sinless. We know about his past. A persecutor of the church, that wasn't going to be the legacy by which he was remembered. The legacy by which he's going to be remembered is sitting right here in this room right now. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And because of his ministry, because of his thinking, his service, you and I, we are all here today. There's a legacy. So, so you want to be aware of the present. You want to be dialed in in the here and now, no matter how much time you have left. It's not over till it's over. And you have epitaphs, yet to write, legacies yet to leave, enduring legacies, eternal legacies. You have spiritual descendants yet to birth. I mean, if you think about it, Paul is our great, 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 great spiritual granddaddy. 
So be mindful of the present. Be aware. Be present in the present for the glory of God, for the good of others, and your own growth. That was the first key. Second key, key number two, is remember the past. Remember the past. Rehearse the past. Look back, not on your failures. Don't dwell. Don't be so morbidly introspective that you paralyze yourself or strangle future ministry. But remember what God has done through you, what he's enabled you to do for him and for others. Where do we see that? 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul could look back on his past with a clear conscience. And the question is, can you, can I, can we? What about our mistakes? What about our failures? What about all the things we did wrong? Again, Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He once described himself as the chief of sinners, but it was because he appreciated the grace of God in Christ. He wasn't sinless. We're not sinless. But God used Paul to do great things. His spirit indwelling Paul empowered Paul to live for him, to bring the gospel to to far off distant and deadly places. Paul made his mistakes, so did Peter. But you know what? You look at the whole body of work, not the occasional failing, not the faux pas. You look at the glory of God manifested through a cracked earthen vessel like Paul, like Peter, like you, like me. What does that mean? It means we still have time to add to our epitaphs, to leave a greater legacy than maybe what we've left so far. It means there's still hope. Paul could look back. Peter could look back. You can look back and see God's fingerprints on your ministry. Every good thing you've done is an act of God. He was present with you, in you, and for you, believer. Not everybody has a great legacy to leave. Those who oppose God, those who are complacent, their legacy uh, is not so great. Where do we see that? You see that beginning in verse 14. How'd you like to be remembered this way? Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's not the legacy you want to leave behind. And there are many leaving that legacy in our culture, in our society today, but they're outside the family of God. And there are some even inside the family of God who have become complacent. Uh, you know, we've talked about that before, particularly in the times with the, with the era in which we live, with the restrictions placed on us by the pandemic and by the government and things like that. It's easy to back off and to, and to blame circumstance. Verse 16 At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You know, he talks, he names some names here. Some of them deserted him, just abandoned him. I think some of them failed to pick up the phone in the middle of the night and say, I'm on my way. But look here. Look here. And this is why he could run the race, keep the faith, fight the good fight. This is why he can finish well. Verse 17, he looks back into his past, his distant past and his recent past. And what does he see? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, through this cracked earthen vessel, through this frail human being, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed to the Gentiles, to all the, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was faithful, I fought the good fight, I ran the race, and so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. See, he's mindful of the past. He's done, Paul has done incredible things. But he knows why, and it's not because of human beings, it's because of a sovereign, saving, gracious, loving, providing God. So we can depend on our own strength, our own feelings. We can look to our circumstances and and write off opportunities to serve. Or we can be like Paul and look back at the hardship and see the handprints of God on our life and ministry and excel still more. You know, today we have people who are in active opposition to the gospel. 
We have a culture, a society that's increasingly Christ hostile. We have a media that's Christ hostile. We even have people in the church. I, this last podcast, uh, we talked about what is an ex-evangelical. There are people who are drifting away from the bride of Christ and finding church irrelevant and not necessary and inconvenient because this is their opportunity because they maybe never really knew God anyway because they're not trusting God in the tough times because they're not willing like Jeremiah to find joy among the ruins and they're not hanging in and hanging on the tough times but Paul is because he sees the power of God in him I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith how 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 did he develop this mindset this mindset that would leave a legacy depending on whose numbers you believe of something like a billion Christians worldwide now I think many of those are nominal but how can this man leaves such a legacy among the Gentile nations. Certainly he lived in the present. He made the most of every opportunity. He remembered God's faithfulness. He remembered the past. But he also, and this is the third key to leaving the kind of legacy that Paul left. Like Paul, we have to anticipate the future. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, said that We need to live life with eternity stamped on our foreheads, always in the forefront of our mind. And Paul does that, you see that in verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the one who counts, will award to me, will award to me. There is an air of certainty there, a conviction shall, will award to me on that day. That's the Bema judgment. That's the judgment of believers at the end of the age after the second coming of Christ. But look at this. What's next? And not only to me, and not only to me, the apostle of the Gentiles, but to all, to everyone, to all who have loved his appearing. That's us. That's the Christ follower. We live in a tension. A tension, not inattention. We are living in the present. We tend to look at the past, but we must never lose sight of the future. Paul didn't. Paul knew in whom he had believed and that that one would be able to keep and preserve him until that day, what Paul had entrusted to him, namely his soul, his future, his eternity. And so even as Paul in that moment is being poured out as a drink offering, he can look back and remind himself of the faithfulness of God and look forward to his ultimate reward and look beyond his own execution. And that keeps him from being paralyzed by fear, hopelessness, regret, morbid introspection. And that is where and how we need to have our minds focused even as he was being poured out like a drink offering his trust in God was unwavering and in the closing chapter verses of this chapter we read this look at verse 18 this is his confidence the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen Paul knew and had no doubt of God's character. It's the kind of character that delivers on its promises. Understand, along with Paul, that Paul's life and ministry weren't being snuffed out. They were not really about to end. They were only about to blossom and bloom and reach full blossom in the next life. See, this life is short, But eternity, as we say, is long. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know, blessed is the man who who perseveres under trial. James 1.12, he will receive from God the crown of righteousness. 
the Stephanos who he gives to all who love him. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, not Nero, not the culture, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all, to everyone, to all Christ's followers, to all who have loved his appearing. And so Paul fought the good fight, unentangled in civilian affairs, to please the one who enlisted him. He competed according to the will of God, like an athlete competes according to the rules. He competed, he lived his life, he labored, then and there, in the here and now, even in prison, like the hard-working farmer, sowing seeds, hoping to enjoy the first fruits of that harvest. And now, and now he could look forward in a different sense to a certain future to enter into God's peace and rest. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul lived in difficult times where people were brutal, unappeasable, lovers of self, not lovers of good, ungrateful and heartless, no doubt like Nero. Some were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, and maybe some of those abandoned Paul. But he hung in and hung on, never losing sight of God and Christ and the future that was laid up for him. And like Paul, you and I must take heart in the here and now, remembering the past, remembering what God has done through us, anticipating what God has in store for us, and that will give us the urgency, the strength, the joy, the peace, and the presence of mind to soldier on in the here and now. And no matter what happens, we know that the Lord will stand by us as he stood by Paul. He will strengthen us so that the message might be proclaimed among the Gentiles here in San Jose. And so we look forward to a future living with him in heaven, but right now living for him in the present, remembering all he has done for us in the past through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the things he's enabled us to do beyond our abilities. And so Paul was able to finish well. Why? Because Paul considered the present and made the most of every opportunity, and so must we. Because Paul remembered the past and God's faithfulness and what God enabled him to do, and so must we. And because Paul anticipated the future, the reward that was laid up for him by the righteous judge, the only one who counts. You know, people are going to point to your failings, and even at the Thanksgiving table in the months to come, if we can eat together, you know, there's always a family member who remembers what you did when you were young and dumb. The prophet has no honor in his own town among his own people, but the righteous judge is the one who judges you. And so you have ministry left to do, more legacies yet to live, and more of an epitaph yet to write. And let me encourage you to write well, to make the most of the time, to remember Jesus and what he's done for you and what you've done through him and what he's done through you. To remember what you have and where you are and the opportunities that are here and now. And to remember that you have a home in heaven and a place to go when this life is over. So what do you do with all this? Well, I've got some questions for you to consider by means of application. And the first question is this. If your life were to end right now, what kind of kingdom legacy would you leave? What would you leave to your children, to your spouse, to your family, to your church, to your neighbors? How would the world remember you? Would they remember you? And if you're not sure, start writing. You've got life yet to live, ministry opportunities yet to seize upon and fulfill, people to meet, places to go, and a God to glorify. Second question, 
What does your kingdom track record look like right now? Are you conscious of the present? Are you, are you living life with eternity stamped on your forehead knowing that you and me, that we, and even this church come with an expiration date? Let me encourage you that even if you are in your final days as Paul was, you can write a magnificent closing chapter. And I want to encourage you, therefore, to write well. Again, Peter made his mistakes, denied Christ three times, that mess in Galatia where he wouldn't sit with the Gentiles because of the Jews. But we don't remember Peter for that, do we really? We remember 1 Peter, 2 Peter. We remember the sermon at Pentecost, right? He wrote well. He was imperfect, but he served a perfect God. Write well. You can be like Samuel Whitmore, getting after it at 80 and being remembered for those last 19 years. Third question, are you ready to answer God's call, whether it's to take you home or for greater service? If today were your last day or the start of your last week, would there be laid up for you in heaven a treasure? In other words, are you connected to God by way of salvation or not? Do you know God or just know about God? What would your epitaph say? She died religious but without knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Or she found him at the end of her life and made every remaining second count. What would that be? Let me just encourage you, if you don't know what it means to be born again, you don't know what it means to belong to Jesus Christ don't leave here today don't leave here today without surrendering your soul your past your present your future your will yourself your whole person to him so that you can start writing a legacy that will really last and an epitaph that you would want to be remembered by friends there is work to be done There are lives to be touched, souls to be saved. Right well. Right well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us from this day and this day forth to write well. To write, to compose a legacy that brings glory to you, good to others, and growth to ourselves, Lord. Lord, help us to live in this tension that Paul lived in. Always mindful of the present and the here and now. Looking back to the past and drawing strength from all that Christ has done for us and through us. Anticipating a heavenly home as we answer that upward call. Forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to the upward call that is in Christ. Father, help us to be found faithful at your return. Help us to redeem the time. Because the days are evil, Lord. And help us to be remembered not by our faux pas, our failings, or our sin, but by our love for you and our love for our neighbor as we serve you with all that we have left. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.